Hi, listeners. Like you, we're deeply saddened and concerned by the spread of COVID-19. Because of this, Parcast has decided to temporarily halt recording this week. We apologize for interrupting your listening experience, but we feel that it's a necessary action to ensure the safety of our hosts and staff. In lieu of this week's episode, it is my pleasure to introduce you to a fantastic episode from the Parcast series, Mythical Monsters. So, why Mythical Monsters? Well, here's a couple of reasons you might enjoy it. First is that it's hosted by my good friend and frequent collaborator, Vanessa Richardson. She's such a great storyteller. Second is that, like Haunted Places, Mythical Monsters features plenty of spooky legends and weird histories, more than you might think. And there's no greater way to prove this to you than with the episode you're about to hear on The Grim Reaper. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more tales of mythology's greatest foils, follow the podcast series Mythical Monsters on Spotify. New episodes premiere every Monday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please note the story you're about to hear is not a direct telling of any single myth about the Grim Reaper. Today's episode combines elements from a number of legends and stories about this iconic personification of death for dramatic effect. (coughs) Isabel felt her brother's forehead and frowned. Only two days ago, Michael had been a healthy nine-year-old. Now he lay shivering on the straw mat in the small thatched roof house they shared, barely able to lift himself to eat. His eyes were red, his skin pale and clammy, except when it flared with heat. The tips of his fingers and nose were already starting to turn black. She knew all too well what would happen next. The plague had already taken both her parents, her older brothers John and Ulrich, and baby Mary. At only twelve, Isabel had been left alone to take care of Michael, and as long as his heart was still beating, that was what she was going to do. He croaked for water, and Isabel reached for the bucket. She froze when she saw the blood-flecked vomit splattered along the rim. She pushed it away with her foot and told Michael she would be right back. Isabel dragged the stool to the kitchen cabinet and climbed onto it. Standing on her tiptoes, she could still barely reach the handle of her mother's prized white pitcher. Her fingers had just wrapped around the handle when she heard it through the window, a horse-drawn cart. It came to a stop in front of her house. A moment later, there was a knock at the door. Isabel cursed under her breath and hopped down from the stool. She'd all but forgotten that the tax collector was due. Not that it would have mattered. She had nothing to pay him. Well, if he wanted to throw them out in the street now while her brother was on his deathbed, let him try. Anger burned in her stomach as she wrenched open the door. A figure towered above her draped in black. Isabel's eyes traveled up the cloak to its hooded head. Peering into the dark abyss of the figure's cowl, she could just make out the gleam of ivory bone, a toothy, grinning smile. 
hollow eyes. The figure extended a skeletal hand, demanding its due. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week, we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling the stories of their origins, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creations of these beasts, where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose some of humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today's episode is part of our series on Halloween, where we delve into the fascinating traditions behind the world's scariest holiday. If you enjoy this episode of Mythical Monsters, be sure to check out the rest of the ParCast Presents Halloween feed on Spotify. Today we're discussing the Grim Reaper. This ghoulish personification of death is often depicted as a scythe-wielding specter draped in hooded black robes. He stalks the world, collecting the souls of the recently departed. We meet him only once, but we know him at a glance. In the Western world, the ghoulish image of a figure in a hooded black cloak or monk's robes wielding a two-handed scythe has become virtually synonymous with death. Whether the face beneath his cowl is that of a vacant human skull, a ghostly pale man, or an empty void makes no difference. For many, the Grim Reaper has become so ingrained in our collective unconscious that it's difficult to remember a time before we knew his name. But as infamous and iconic as this figure is, his origins sometimes seem as mysterious and unknowable as death itself. One might even assume that he's always been with us, a constant companion to humanity since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden. But at least compared to his mythical brethren, the modern incarnation of the Grim Reaper is relatively young. That's not to say that anthropomorphizing of death is a fresh idea. Far from it. But while countless ancient cultures have their own image of death, for the most part, these characters were decidedly less grim than the Reaper we know today. The ancient Greeks depicted death as Thanatos, a young, handsome god who was the son of Nyx, goddess of night. While he was given the dour task of shepherding the dead into the underworld, Thanatos's touch was said to be as gentle as that of his brother, Hypnos, the god of sleep. This depiction indicates a perception of death as a natural part of life, not to be feared, but embraced. The image of death in Norse Pantheon is less peaceful, but nevertheless positive. 
the beautiful Valkyrie, or choosers of the slain, soar over the battlefield on winged horses, selecting which of the fighting warriors will die. Afterward, the bravest are carried to Valhalla, the great hall of Odin, where they feast each night and fight in glorious battles each day. The Abrahamic religions describe the Angel of Death, alternatively known as the Angel of the Lord or Destroyer Angel. In the book of Exodus, he brings the tenth plague of Egypt, slaying the firstborn of every Egyptian household while passing over the homes of their Israelite slaves. Here, death becomes a frightening symbol of the awesome and terrible power of God. Like the biblical angel of death, the Grim Reaper does not choose his victims, nor does he judge their actions in life. He is but a tool, a servant to a higher purpose, completing his duties with the steady, unwavering determination of time itself. Isabel stared up in shock at the dark, shrouded figure. As it raised its bony white hand to beckon her forward, she stumbled backward into the house, realizing too late that she should have tried to shut the door instead. The wraith was already stooping through the doorway. As it stepped inside, the hovel seemed to stretch to allow its impossibly tall frame. The room darkened as it glided toward Isabel, one reaching arm still stretched out before it. The other grasped the pole of a two-handed scythe, its long, wicked blade glinting in the dim light. Every fiber of Isabel screamed, Run! But she was the only thing that stood between the wraith and her nine-year-old brother. Before she knew what was happening, she found herself screaming with more ferocity than she'd known she possessed. Flecks of spit flew into the wraith's cowl as she told it, in no uncertain terms, that Michael would not be going anywhere today. The wraith stopped. Isabel couldn't see anything but darkness beneath its hood, but she nevertheless had the distinct impression that it was confused. Then it lifted its right arm again, one finger extending, to point at something beyond her. Very slowly, Isabel turned in the direction it had indicated. If she'd had any breath remaining, it would have caught in her throat as she stared at the kitchen floor. Isabel's lifeless body lay beside the stool, neck twisted in an impossible angle. Shards of her mother's shattered white pitcher lay around her. The wraith wasn't here for Michael. It was here for her. By the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church was the dominant force in Europe, and the Angel of Death had become a well-known character to the common people. But before long, another enemy, smaller than a grain of rice, would change the continent forever. Its name was Yersinia pestis, the bubonic plague. This bacterium is carried primarily in rats, but transfers easily to human hosts via fleas. Within a week of contraction, 
pus-filled swellings known as buboes cover the victim's skin, particularly around the armpits and groin, occasionally bursting to spread infected blood to anyone who comes in contact with it. From 1346 to 1353, Europe was ravaged by a cascading series of bubonic plague outbreaks known as the Black Death. The plague spread across the continent with shocking speed. Almost overnight, previously lively streets became littered with bodies. Local governments struggled to dig mass graves fast enough to fill the demand. It's estimated that the outbreak claimed 50 million lives in Europe alone, approximately 60% of Europe's entire population. In the matter of a decade, the common people's relationship with death had forever changed. It became at once familiar and terrifying, while the prospect of a peaceful death became a fantasy. It was in this morbid setting that the Grim Reaper was born. Isabel winced as the impact of yet another pothole sent shockwaves through death's rickety wooden cart. It was even less comfortable than she thought it would be when he pointed for her to climb in the back. It didn't help that the cart was full to bursting. A dozen shades, the souls of the recent dead, lay in a haphazard pile. Aside from being a bit paler and translucent, they appeared just as they had in the moment of death. Many of the shades were covered in raw red boils, their fingers and noses blackened with plague. A few let out occasional moans of discomfort, but most were as silent and immobile as Isabel assumed their bodies were, wherever they were. She had been forced to leave hers behind on the kitchen floor, broken neck and all. Death had allowed her only enough time to kiss Michael on the forehead. She hated to think of her brother back there, all alone with his pain. He wouldn't last long without someone to take care of him. The cart came to an abrupt stop, sending the dead rolling over into one another. Isabel hollered in protest as she took an elbow to the eye. Fed up, she grabbed a wooden slat in one hand and the legs of a shade in the other and started to pull herself through the pile of shades. Quit wiggling, hissed the shade of an old man. Isabel ignored him and kept going. Swollen buboes of blood and pus burst against her skin as she fought her way out of the tangled mass of limbs. At long last, she pried herself free and hopped down from the cart, just in time to see the reaper disappear into a nearby house, scythe in hand. Isabel made her way around the cart, grateful for the opportunity to stretch her legs. It was an unusually warm day and might have been quite enjoyable were it not for the stench of corpses that permeated the city. Down the road, she could see a couple piled in a gutter. A despondent-looking shade sat in the mud beside them. No doubt they'd be picking him up next. As Isabel reached the front of the cart, her attention shifted to the four enormous black draft horses lashed to it. The horse in the front watched her closely as she approached, but he didn't protest as she reached up to stroke his powerful neck. 
the door of the nearest house swung open and the wraith emerged, followed by the shade of an elderly woman. Once the woman had successfully pulled herself into the back of the cart, the wraith headed to the front. He had just climbed into the driver's seat when he noticed Isabel staring up at him from the ground. He immediately pointed to the back. Isabel protested. There's no room back there, and the cart's slower than I am anyway. Please let me walk up here with the horses. My father was a stable hand, so I know my way around them. I won't make any trouble, I promise. The wraith stared down at her for another moment, then gave an almost imperceptible shrug and seized the reins. Isabel took this as permission to do as she pleased. She had to walk fast to keep pace with the horses, but it was far better than the back of the cart, and she enjoyed the feeling of the cool mud squelching between her translucent toes. They stopped to pick up the man waiting in the gutter, and then a few houses down to collect a family of six who had all expired on the same morning. Next came a blacksmith, then a cobbler's son, and then a magistrate's mother. Young and old, rich and poor, they climbed one by one into the back of the hooded figure's cart. Eventually they reached the edge of town, but the driver kept going. Soon the muddy streets gave way to less-traveled country roads, and then the roads disappeared altogether. By the time night fell, they were deep into a dark forest. Isabel's legs were now exhausted, and her feet smarted with the pain of countless blisters. For a moment, she wondered if she'd made a mistake in asking to walk alongside the cart. But one look at the mass of bodies piled in the back convinced her to keep going. She would walk to the ends of the earth before letting herself get tangled up in that lot again. Isabel frowned as the sounds of revelry and merrymaking wafted over the forest. Peering through the trees, she could just make out the glow of a campfire. As they neared it, the silhouette of a pavilion came into view. A dozen or more men were crowded around a table beneath it, laughing boisterously as they toasted one another. It was a hunting party. Isabel's eyes widened with awe as she took in the sumptuous feast spread out along the table. She watched as the men tore into roast pheasant and huge meat pies and guzzled down gourds of ale. Every bite that disappeared down their throats looked like it would have been enough to sustain her and Michael for a full day. The low, simmering fire of rage was alight once more. Just a few miles away, thousands of people were in anguish, and here these noblemen were, eating and drinking themselves to death. A smile spread across Isabel's face as she remembered the grim driver of the cart, which had now come to a stop beside her. The fact that they were here meant that one of these men was about to die. And for the first time all day, Isabel was going to enjoy watching it happen. Coming up, 
Death evens the scales. Now back to the story. After a busy day spent collecting victims of the bubonic plague, Death arrived at the opulent camp of a hunting party deep within a forest. He sat in his rickety cart at the perimeter of the camp, watching and waiting. In one hand he grasped the double-handed scythe, the tool he had been given to reap the souls of the living. In the other he held the hourglass, the sands cascaded from top to bottom, as steady as time itself. And for one soul at the camp, time was almost up. In Brittany, Wales, Cornwall, and parts of Ireland, there exists an older personification of death with some striking similarities to the Grim Reaper. He's known as the Anku, and it's said that when he comes, he does not leave empty-handed. The Anku is a gaunt, sometimes decrepit old man with greasy tangles of long white hair. He wears a black cloak with a high collar and a wide-brimmed hat that hides his haggard features, until his neck pivots around 360 degrees to stare at you like an owl, a look that means you have surely died. He drives a black carriage drawn by four large black horses and is sometimes accompanied by two ghosts on foot. Interestingly, this version of death is not a singular figure, but a role that's transferred from one person to the next. In some parts of Brittany, it's said that every parish has its Anku and that he's the spirit of the last person to die each year. One old fairy story explains the origins of the Anku. It begins with a cruel prince and a lively hunting party's expedition to a dark forest. <laughs> prince Callum drained the last mouthful of ale from his goblet, turning it over to demonstrate that it was empty. This elicited a roar of raucous applause from the crowd of men gathered around the table, it also inspired his cousin and vassal, Egri, to slap him on the back with such force that Callum spewed the mouthful of ale out onto his plate. Callum wiped his mouth while the men laughed and applauded even louder than before. Still glaring daggers at Egri, the prince announced that he was retiring for the night. As he departed, he took the last leg of pheasant from Egri's plate explaining apologetically that his own plate had been ruined. Callum wandered out away from the fire, chewing the pheasant. He stopped at the edge of camp and, still holding the leg in his mouth, unbelted his trousers to relieve himself. Callum heard the creaking axle approaching out of the forest. Who goes there? he shouted through the roast fowl, spinning around while still grappling with his belt. His jaw fell, dropping the pheasant leg, as he stared at the terrible being before him. An impossibly tall and slender specter, dressed in robes of the deepest black, stared down at him from the seat of an old black cart. The cart itself was drawn by four of the largest black horses Callum had ever seen. 
the spectral figure raised an arm to point a single bony finger right at the prince. Callum swallowed, gathering himself. In the bravest voice he could manage, he addressed the cloaked figure. Spirit, I know not why you point your bony appendage hither, but I wonder if you know in whose presence you now stand. I am Callum, prince of these lands, and the owner of this forest, and I... Before the prince could finish his proclamation, he was distracted by an odd noise behind him. Turning around to chastise the interrupter, he found himself staring at his own pale bottom. He, or a man who looked just like him, was writhing on the ground, clawing at his throat. His unbelted trousers hung loose around his ankles, and a leg of half-eaten pheasant lay in the grass beside him. Oh, that isn't fair, Callum protested, realizing he was watching his own death unfold before him. I can't die like this. It's my birthday tomorrow. A gleeful laugh sounded behind Callum, and he spun around to face the hooded specter again. For the first time, he noticed the young girl standing beside the lead horse. She was pale as death and slightly translucent and glowing like gossamer in the moon. "'What's funny?' Callum snapped. This only inspired the girl to laugh harder. She cackled, "'You are going on about your birthday.' I broke my neck this morning trying to fetch a pitcher, but you don't see me whining about it. Callum stared at her. What do you mean, broke your neck? Who are you people? My name's Isabel, and if you haven't figured it out yet, he's death. There's no use crying about it. As far as I'm concerned, you got just what you deserved. Stuffing your face out here while my brother's dying in town. Callum interrupted, seizing his opportunity. I can save him. Your brother. I'll get him a doctor. Whatever he needs. Please, I don't want to die. Isabel had stopped laughing. Her eyes narrowed as she stared back at Callum. Slowly, she turned to look up at the cloaked rider. When he did not move, Isabel lowered her gaze to the ground. I bet you wouldn't have been able to help him anyway, she muttered. All the fire seemed to have gone out of her in an instant, but Callum didn't care. His attention was now entirely fixed on the hooded specter. I won't come with you. You can't have me. It isn't fair, he insisted. The specter stood, seizing its scythe. Callum pleaded, Wait, I'm rich, I'm powerful, ask for anything and it's yours. The specter stepped down from the cart, unfazed by the prince's words. Callum staggered backward as it loomed toward him. You need a life, is that it? My men will gladly die for me. Take one of them, take all of them. Why won't you say anything? Is this a game to you? The specter stopped. Callum continued, thinking on his feet. That's it. A bet. I'll make you a challenge, spirit. 
In this forest there lives a white stag, the rarest game in all this land. My party has hunted it for years and never come close. But tonight I know for sure that it is mine. Let us both race for it. The one to fell the stag takes the spoils. The stag and the right to determine the fate of the other. Callum caught his breath, feigning bravery, awaiting a reply. As you wish. A voice like a rake scraped against rough stone had risen suddenly from the black depths of the cowl. For a moment, Callum thought he had imagined it. Then suddenly, he was writhing on the ground, lungs screaming for air. With a final great gasp, the bone that had been blocking his airway shot out onto the ground. He scrambled to his feet, pulling up his trousers and wiping the spittle from his mouth. The cloaked figure had already climbed down from the cart and was now unfastening the horses. He gave the reins of one to Isabel, who led the massive steed to Callum. By the time the prince had managed to climb onto its back, the spectre was firmly seated upon his own horse. How do we start? The spectre stared back at Callum, silent as the grave. All right, said the prince at last. Go. The cloaked rider took off like a bolt of lightning, with a swish of his cloak and a thunderous cascade of pounding hooves, he disappeared into the darkness. Callum grinned and cranked his horse's reins, turning it to face the opposite direction. Good luck catching a stag that isn't there. He dug his heels into his horse's flanks and galloped off into the night, leaving the cart, the two remaining horses, and Isabel behind. In the 14th century, while the bubonic plague ravaged the continent, European artists increasingly began to depict the character of death as a skeletal figure. Sometimes he held a weapon, usually a crossbow or dart, which he would use to select his victims. At times he was shown on top of a horse, an allusion to the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 8. It reads, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him, and power was given to them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. In the decades following the Black Death scourge of Europe, the skeletal figure gradually began to gather a variety of new accoutrements. The crossbow was traded in for a two-handed scythe, an instrument loaded with symbolic significance. Beyond its unique and threatening appearance, the scythe was a familiar symbol in the agrarian world of medieval Europe. It was particularly associated with the changing of the seasons and harvest, the point when the year would come to an end and, at least allegorically, die. No longer would death be a hunter, carefully selecting his victims before firing a bolt into their hearts. From then on, he would be a farmer, 
claiming scores of living with a single swing of his curved blade. In plague-ravaged Europe, no image could be more apt. For if death is a reaper and mankind is his wheat, then he claims us by the bushel. Coming up, the reaper collects. Now back to the story. Once long ago, the cruel Prince Callum was hunting in a forest near his home when he was visited by death himself. The dark, hooded spirit had come to claim Callum's soul, for the young prince's time was up. Refusing to accept his demise, Callum challenged death with a game— Whichever of them could kill the white stag that lived in the forest would decide the fate of the other. As soon as death charged off in pursuit of the stag, Callum turned and galloped away, making for his own castle. As he rode through the night, he threw back his head and howled with laughter. He, Prince Callum, had outwitted death. The tale of the Anku and the Cruel Prince depicts one of the most common archetypes of Grim Reaper stories. A mortal man attempts to cheat death, often by challenging him to a game or bet. Examples of this trope appear in Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's The Legend of Rabbi Ben Levy, as well as the 1958 Ingmar Bergman film The Seventh Seal, which famously depicts death as an avid chess player. While the Reaper has a grim job, he's clearly not above a bit of fun, so long as the stakes are human life. In addition to chess and friendly wagers, Death appears to be a music fan. One of the most popular images to come out of the Middle Ages is the Dance of Death, often known by its French name, the Danse Macabre. Depicted in countless paintings, frescoes, and wood carvings from the Middle Ages, this allegorical scene showed a troop of skeletal figures luring the living to their graves to the tune of a lively song. Often the characters in these scenes came from all walks of life. Popes and princes waltzed beside the poor, elderly, and infirmed, underscoring the fact that whatever one's status or wealth, death came for all in the end. The theme of death as the great equalizer was revisited by Edgar Allan Poe in 1842 when he published his short story, The Mask of the Red Death. The death figure in the tale bears visible similarities to the figure of the Grim Reaper, whose name would make its first appearance only five years later. In Poe's gothic story, a cruel prince invites his wealthy friends to wait out a plague epidemic behind the walls of an abbey. One night, he hosts an extravagant party to entertain his guests. But as the prince would soon learn, walls can only keep death at bay for so long. Prince Callum watched as the abbey gates ground slowly shut finally slamming together with an ominous thud that echoed through the courtyard. The guards immediately set to work securing the doorbeam, which they reinforced with heavy metal chains. When it was done, one of the guards approached Callum and handed him the large brass key. 
Satisfied, Callum turned to face his waiting guests. They were dressed in the finest regalia, lavish beaded costumes matched only by their jewel-encrusted masks. Callum addressed them. My friends, the gates are shut and I alone hold the key. The horrors that plague the world outside hold no sway here. Inside this abbey there is no death and no suffering. There is only music, good food, better company, and enough wine to last us to the second coming. So please, forget your cares and worries and enjoy my birthday. Prince Callum moved through the crowd, greeting his guests and enjoying the atmosphere of frivolity and celebration. He spotted a slender woman in a white rabbit mask and recognized her as a young duchess he'd been speaking to earlier in the evening. He'd almost made his way to her when he was intercepted by the abbot. The abbey thanks you for your generosity, Prince Callum, said the abbot through his porcine mask. The new stained glass windows you donated are simply magnificent. I had them all installed in separate rooms so that their vibrant colors can be properly admired. No expense can be spared where the Lord's house is concerned, said the prince, eager to move on. Truer words were never spoken. I'm so pleased we were able to host your celebration this evening. If you could only remind your guests that the chapel is off-limits. Some of your more inebriated friends seem to have mistaken the baptismal font for a wading pool. Callum brushed the abbot off. I'm sure the Lord will understand. His son had an affinity for clean feet, if I remember correctly. Prince Callum was already moving off before the abbot could object. He scanned the room for the woman in the rabbit mask, but there was no sign of her. As the abbey's bell began to toll, Callum heard a horrible, sickening scream. He whirled around to find one of his guests on the verge of hysteria, pointing at something in the corner. Someone had brought the Black Death into the abbey, she shouted. The disease was inside the walls, and now they were all going to die. Prince Callum followed the woman's gaze. A short, pale, shoeless figure stood near the gates, dressed in filthy, blood-specked rags. Her mask was a white plaster skull with the nose painted black and red smeared around the grinning mouth. Striding over to the short figure, Callum announced, It isn't the Black Death, merely someone's idea of a practical joke. We're all safe here. Please, return to your revelry while I deal with this mischief-maker. The short figure didn't move as the prince strode across the courtyard. How dare you wear that gruesome thing in here? You've come this close to ruining my birthday. I should have you hung. Callum snatched the mask off the figure's head and froze. It was the girl shade from the forest, the one that had accompanied Death's cart, Isabel. What are you doing here? Callum stammered in shock. Isabel smiled sweetly up at him. The question is, what are you doing here? You owe him. Callum shook his head, trying to brush her off. 
But he can't come in here. This is the Lord's house, and the walls... Isabel replied, He goes where he goes. That woman in the rabbit mask? She brought him inside. She doesn't know she's sick yet, but she will soon. I'll throw her out then, Callum snapped, spinning around and searching the crowd. Where is she? Upstairs with your cousin Egri. You're going to have to throw him out too, I'm afraid. And the Duke and the Friar. It's spreading now. It won't take long. Prince Callum looked up as the courtyard fell suddenly silent. The masked guests were frozen in stupor, staring at their new visitor. The hooded specter stood in their midst, towering above their shoulders, scythe in his right hand. Fresh screams broke out. The woman in the rabbit mask fell to her knees, coughing blood onto the stone floor of the courtyard. The crowd surged away from her. Gasps of panic spread as another guest began to cough, and another, and another. It's the Black Death, someone shouted. Get out or we'll all be killed, said another. The guests surged toward the abbey gates, clawing at one another to be first out. Wait, cautioned the abbot. Prince Callum has the only key. We must... The crowd surged over the abbot in an instant, ignoring his cries of pain as they trampled him into the stones of the courtyard floor. The guests threw themselves at the gates in a writhing mass, howling in fury and despair as they refused to budge. The prince stared through the bedlam, and the towering hooded wraith stared back. He was to blame for all of this, Callum thought. He had ruined his hunt, and now his birthday. Seething with rage, Callum grabbed a nearby guard and drew the man's sword. He turned back to see the hooded specter disappearing into the interior of the abbey. Do not run from me, spirit, Prince Callum shouted, racing into the building. Turning into the first door he came to, Callum found himself inside a small, dark chapel. At the center of the outer wall was a single, ornate window of blue-stained glass. Moonlight pooled through it, filling the room with a cold, dim light. The corner of a black cloak disappeared around a door at the far end of the room. Callum hurried after it and immediately found himself in a similar chapel illuminated by a purple-stained glass window. The specter was not inside, so Prince Callum did not stop. He chased death through the abbey, sword gripped tight in his hand, each room he passed through glowed with light from a window of a different colored glass. After purple came green, then orange, then white, then violet. As he stepped into the seventh room, he slowed. It was too dark to say for sure the room was empty. Black silk hung from the ceilings along the walls. The window was circular, smaller than the rest, and painted a deep red. It glowed like a lidless eye, painting the room deep scarlet. The wraith loomed from the darkness, 
silhouetted in red, it glided toward Callum, who raised his sword before him. Crimson light glinted off the blade as he leapt forward with a scream and plunged the sword into the specter's robes. Callum laughed in triumph as death came to a stop. Then the wraith reached beneath the folds of his robes, drawing forth gnarled antlers and blood-specked white fur. Callum's sword protruded from the chest of the white stag, which death carefully placed on the floor before the prince. The stag is yours, as are all the souls of the world. Callum stared into the cowl in fear and confusion. Who are you? he demanded, but death was silent. Furious, Callum stepped over the corpse of the stag and reached up to seize the specter's hood. He pulled it back to reveal... Nothing. Prince Callum stood alone at the center of the scarlet room, holding an empty black cloak. What does it mean? The prince wondered aloud. Isabel tiptoed into the room and bent to pick up the scythe that now lay on the floor. I thought that he was pretty clear, she said, offering him the handle. Callum honored his predecessor's agreement with Isabel, allowing her to walk up front with the horses rather than ride in the back with the rest of the shades. She was initially reticent to accept the new death, but soon had to admit that his capacity for speech made him a more entertaining companion. While he was sometimes as moody and self-obsessed as she'd first feared, he was also quite funny, a good storyteller, and good at coming up with games to pass the time. For a long while, the prince refused to wear the black cowl, insisting that he was too good-looking to hide away. Eventually, his skin began to wither and gray, and his once lustrous locks started coming off in clumps. Still, he refused the hood, opting instead for a dark, wide-brimmed hat. This lasted until his nose fell off, when he finally admitted that perhaps Isabel was right. Unless he wanted everyone's first glimpse of death to be a noseless man in a rather comical state of mid-decay, it was time to wear the cowl. Callum told fewer jokes after his tongue rotted away, but by this point, Isabel had grown used to his companionship, and the first death had become a distant memory. Callum started letting her ride in the cart beside him and tasked her with carrying his crystal hourglass. While he no longer spoke, aside from the rare, breathy rasp, she sensed that he appreciated being spoken to. One day, many years later, Isabel found herself sitting in yet another hospital room. They had arrived early again, so she watched the grains of sand strain through the hourglass, eager to move on to somewhere more interesting. Meanwhile, Callum stood at the back of the line of relatives, waiting his turn to see the patient on the hospital bed. Turning to look for the first time, Isabel saw that the subject was a pale nine-year-old boy with auburn hair. 
He smiled feebly at each visitor, waiting patiently for them to say their teary piece. But between each relative, his eyes would shift to Callum, waiting in the back of the line, and fill with fear. The hourglass was nearly empty when the last relative kissed the boy on the cheek and shuffled away. Now it was Callum's turn. As he stepped toward the hospital bed, Isabel hopped down from her seat and hurried over to him. Cal, let me talk to him first, okay? She said. The cloaked figure of death stared down at her for a moment, then nodded and took a step back. Isabel stepped toward the bed, meeting the boy's eyes. Hello, I'm Isabel. What's your name? The boy replied, Charlie. Who's he? Charlie was looking at Callum again. The hooded wraith was now trying to fit into one of the hospital chairs, which was proving to be quite a challenge due to his immense height. He's a friend, Isabel said simply. Don't be frightened. I know he looks scary, but he's not so bad when you get to know him. Just bad at first impressions. Charlie didn't look convinced. You remind me of my little brother, she said, apropos of nothing. He got sick too. Did he die? Asked Charlie, turning to face her. Yes, he did, said Isabel sadly. But not from his illness. He got better all on his own. I had to wait quite a long time before I got to see him again. Maybe I'll get better, said Charlie, more to himself than Isabel. She watched as the last grain of sand tumbled to the bottom of the hourglass. At the other end of the room, Callum stood. Isabel spoke softly. Charlie, would you mind if my friend comes to talk to you? Charlie looked apprehensive, but he nodded bravely. Isabel smiled. She had just started to turn away when she thought of something. Hey, Charlie, she said quickly because Callum was looming closer. Do you know anything about horses? Charlie didn't. Well, just tell him you do, okay? Tell him you're great with him and that you're a fast walker and that you want to walk up front with me. If he says no at first, just stand your ground. He's a big pushover. You'll see. Charlie clearly had no idea what she was talking about, but he agreed to do as Isabel asked. She stepped aside and let death sweep past her to collect the boy. At the same moment, Isabel turned over the hourglass and watched as grains of sand began to cascade from the top to the bottom. It was time to be moving on. For all of recorded human history, mankind has struggled to understand the ethereal concept of death. On the one hand, it's all around us, an inescapable part of life. We first encounter it through friends and family members who are here one day and gone the next. But until we can experience it ourselves, what happens after we close our eyes for the last time remains a mystery. 
Virtually every culture and religion in history has sought to answer the question of what happens to us after we shuffle off our mortal coil. Perhaps it should not be surprising, then, that we would turn to the most human method of grappling with the unknown, giving it a face. Just as the ancient Greeks and Nords sought to understand lightning through the gods Zeus and Thor, so have we sought a face for death. In the modern Western world, we have the Grim Reaper, a shrouded wraith who will tirelessly walk the earth until the last mortal human breathes their last gasp. His unforgettable face is the blank skull, stripped clean of all flesh. It's perhaps the most primal symbol of death there is, depicting the final moment in which the body retains any guise of humanity. Before long, it too will become dust and be lost forever to oblivion. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Mythical Monsters is written by Andrew Kelleher. I'm Vanessa Richardson. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more tales of mythology's greatest foils, follow the podcast series Mythical Monsters on Spotify. New episodes premiere every Monday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.